Hi, and welcome to Menlo Church Online. Menlo is a place where we believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. We really hope you enjoyed today's message. So sit back and relax, and here we go. I am so glad you're joining us today in this extraordinary season, uh, whether you're at home, apartment, living room, uh, by yourself, with a life group, with a family. Uh, we're family together. And uh, I've heard from so many folks about how much they have valued this chance to worship as a body. Uh, and I want to talk to you today about sheltering in place because uh, to be sheltered in whatever place you are is something that God wants to teach us how to do. I want to start with what Adam Hendricks in a wonderful sermon taught us a few weeks ago, that you need to have one great goal for a meaningful life. And I want to remind you from Paul's letter to Philippi, we've been studying what that magnificent goal is and see how high your motivation to reach it might be. Paul says, I want to know Christ, not just know about him, but to know him experientially. And wouldn't you like that, to know his comfort, his love, his forgiveness? Know him as your friend and your partner who runs alongside you so that you're never alone. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Couldn't you use some of that power? Power to endure, to create, to speak courageous truth, power to overcome discouragement, power to prevail over obstacles. Wouldn't you love to know resurrection power? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Hmm. Hmm. Well, would you like to participate in his sufferings? He was oppressed, harassed, mocked, arrested, impoverished, imprisoned, beaten, abandoned, betrayed. Would you like to enroll in that program? Or might your motivation be dropping just a little bit at this point? Paul goes on. Becoming like him in his death. In his death, he was crucified, humiliated, defeated, nail-pierced, thorn-crowned, God-forsaken, till in his agony, the breath was crushed out of him. I want to know Christ, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection, we all want that, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And the series that we're in is called The Pursuit of Happiness. This is a obviously a strange approach to the pursuit of happiness. We all know suffering is the opposite of happy. No country says that its citizens are guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of suffering. We all know that the secret to a happy life is suffering avoidance. That's why God invented California. So normally we think the pursuit of happiness requires lots and lots of goods, Good looks, good hair, good teeth, good skin, good job, good salary, good marriage, good kids, good sex, good cholesterol. But these days, the pursuit of happy seems to be on pause. We are sheltering in place. We're waiting to see how bad the virus gets. We're waiting to see how far the economy is going to drop. We're all worried. 
So these days we're all forced, at least for a moment, uh, uh, for a peace, to look for a peace that will not give out when our money gives out or our health gives out. And so today I want to look at some of the most astounding words about joy and peace ever written. But they're not easy words. They were written actually by a man who had been opposed, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and was waiting execution. He did in fact know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in death. And yet, he writes about joy 14 times in this short letter, more than any of his other letters. Peace and joy can be ours, Paul says. We just have to go through the cross first. So here's his words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We were on a Western family vacation several years ago when I opened up a box of what I thought was going to be cake, but inside were a pair of tiny little cowboy boots. And that's how I found out that our daughter, Laura, was pregnant. And I'm a feeler, so I laughed and shouted and danced and cried. And Laura had a video of that moment. You can track the size of a tiny little life like that day by day. And this little life then was about the size of a poppy seed. So we nicknamed the baby Poppy. A few months later, Nancy and I were out of town when a phone call came very early and I could tell from the anguished look on Nancy's face what had happened. And then came a second pregnancy. And then a third. And by this time, there were no more videos and no more cowboy boots and no more nicknames. Rejoice in the Lord always. She got pregnant a fourth time, and this time it lasted. Only with it came not just nausea and sickness and daily vomiting, but a level of acute anxiety and panic attacks and emotional pain that sometimes did not seem like it was going to be bearable. Laura would have nightmares about delivering something awful or something that did not live, and we would try to reassure her. And then the delivery came, and it seemed like her nightmare. The baby came out and was blue and not breathing, and my wife, who was a former nurse, called me in the waiting room at 2.40 in the morning, and I could not tell from her voice whether we had a little life or did not. And on the first day, the baby got a one on his APGAR score, which is the lowest score possible. But soon after that began to recover and then eventually to thrive. And things were very good until around his first birthday or so when Laura's anxiety began to return. I remember being on a church camp out when Laura was seven years old and people were sharing around a campfire and Laura said, when I think of starting second grade, I, I get so anxious, my stomach hurts. And honestly, my thought was, um, oh, it's kind of cute. She's been listening to the way that adults talk and she's trying to imitate them. And I was her dad and I was trained in this field. And for many, many, many years, I missed the pain that was so great and so close to me. Parents' first job is to comfort a frightened child. Researchers say when a parent or a caregiver soothes an infant, it actually 
rewires their brain, rewires their little synapses so that eventually the child carries in their body the peace that once existed only in their caregiver. Quite a remarkable process, the process of attachment and soothing. When Laura was an infant, we would comfort her by saying either, honey, honey, or I know, I know. And sometimes she would wake up when she was 18 months old, and instead of crying like a regular baby, she would wake up in her little crib and cry, honey, 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 I know, I know. And we would lay in our bed and listen and laugh, which probably didn't help much come to think of it. When she would cry in the middle of the night, I would go into her room sometimes and bend down over her crib and stroke her little head, that fine little copper-colored hair, and do it till my back was aching, and I would try to sneak out. But if she was still awake, she'd say, stroke your little head, stroke your little head. And I would stroke her little head till it felt like my back was going to break. But it wasn't enough. It never is. No human being can bring that kind of peace. By this past August, Laura's anxiety had reached a new depth of pain. And it's so hard being a parent and seeing your child suffer and saying, I know, I know, doesn't help much anymore. Part of the perversity of anxiety is that the moments of her life when Laura is being most heroic and most courageous are those moments when she feels most inadequate and most ashamed. By September, the doctors had found a medication that brought significant relief, and we were all grateful and hopeful and cautious and prayerful. And yet Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about a pandemic. Don't be anxious about a recession. Don't be anxious about a birth that could go terribly wrong or not happen at all. There's a lot I don't understand. But I know this. If you come up on somebody who is tormented by clinical anxiety and you're not, and your life is going pretty good, and you just glibly say, be anxious for nothing, you just need to pray more, you just need to have more faith. If you come upon somebody who is suffering from clinical depression or grief so deep that they despair of life, but you're not, your life is going pretty good, and you just glibly say, just rejoice in the Lord always, I say it again. I was going to say, somebody ought to beat you up in the Lord. I don't think beating somebody up in the Lord is a thing, so I'll go a different direction with this. We all know, or think we do, that the secret to pursuing happiness is suffering avoidance. But oddly enough, people like Jesus and people like Paul, who were indefatigably joyful, seem to have zero interest in avoiding suffering. Paul wrote one time, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And I see this happen. I watch as my daughter writes and speaks and befriends and is the suffering that Laura has experienced in her anxiety that enables her to help other people in ways that she could never help if her life were pain-free spiritual victory. I don't know why. I just know that it is and that it is holy somehow. So this pursuit of peace and joy is not something that happens 
in a suffering-free life. In fact, it is made for people in a suffering-filled world. I want to tell you about a distinction that I found very helpful when it comes to sheltering in place. This comes uh, from Dallas Willard about the way that Bible writers use words like joy and peace because they are very often misunderstood. And the distinction is this. There's a big difference between having a peaceful feeling and being a peace-filled person. Or you could think of the distinction this way. There is a big difference between peace as a feeling, a temporary emotion of ease, versus peace as a condition, as an orientation, as a capacity. Peace as the ability to navigate challenges of life that would rock most people, but to be able to do that with simplicity and confidence and poise. Consistent rest from willful striving and uncertain burdened living. That's the condition of peace. Very different than the feeling. There was an Eagle song back in the 70s called, I Got a Peaceful, Easy Feeling. I was just reading, getting ready for this message uh, about this song. It was written by a guy working in a club where they served lots of alcohol and he was hoping to hook up with a waitress and waiting to see if she would come around. And eventually he wrote these words. I got a feeling I may know you as a lover and a friend, but a voice says in my other ear, I may never see you again. I got a peaceful, easy feeling. Enough Jack Daniels will give you a peaceful, easy feeling, but it will not give you the capacity to become a peaceful person. It will not lead you into an overall consistent condition of peace. In fact, it will destroy your ability to enter into that condition. But Jesus will enable that. Jesus will empower that. In fact, it's very important for us to understand how to shelter in place. In fact, I have to be willing to let go of my demand to have the feeling of peace in order to grow into a person of peace. Because when I idolize the feeling above the condition, it leads to addiction. I will do anything. Alcohol, substance, uh, drugs, uh, unhealthy behaviors, just for a momentary feeling of peace that destroy my capacity for the condition. It's the same with joy. Joy, Dallas used to say, is the pervasive sense of well-being. Not a momentary feeling, the pervasive sense of well-being available not just to me, but to all of creation through God's redemptive goodness and power. Not just in this moment or that moment, well-being beyond the capacity of time or change to destroy. Not just for this person or in that little burst of pleasure, joy for Jesus and for Paul was an understanding of life that encompassed both elation and depression and held fiercely to the conviction that because there is the kind of God that Jesus knew and described who reigns over all things, life itself is headed toward a good that can be neither imagined nor stopped. No matter what virus, no matter what pregnancy or no pregnancy, no matter what suffering, no matter what anxiety, no matter what difficulty, joy, joy, joy. The great illusion is that joy or peace are primarily feelings that depend on our circumstances. For almost a decade, uh, our family lived in Chicago. My wife is a California native, 
And she could never get over the fact that Chicago was a stupid place for people to live. A man named F. Martin was the head of the Menlo Search Committee that talked to us about coming out here. And he strategically came to meet with us in Chicago in February in a blizzard. And he told me that he was using both a carrot and a stick to induce me to move to California. The carrot was, if I moved here, I got to live here. And the stick was, if I didn't move here, my wife was coming here anyway, and then I would be both cold and lonely and stupid. I love California. But there is no place, no circumstance, no relationship, no school, no job that is the suffering-free joy bringer. That is why in between Paul's two commands of rejoice always and be anxious for nothing, he has this statement, the Lord is near. Our one goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and yes, participation in his suffering and yes, becoming like him even in death. The virus may be near, the Lord is nearer. Sickness may be near, the Lord is nearer. Recession may be near, the Lord is nearer. Death may be near, the Lord is nearer. That is how you shelter in place because your place see, is not an apartment, not a house, not a car. It is the hand of God. It is shelter in the storm. It is the kingdom of heaven. It is the side of the good shepherd. You can't quarantine Jesus. They tried it once with a rock and a tomb, but it didn't stick. I'll tell you another secret. The virus is going away. Economic cycles, booms and busts, uh, recessions, and, and prosperity, they come and go, but God never changes. So this now is an invitation. My advice would be, you don't have to worry about anything. But in everything, when those worried thoughts do come, use them a as a little reminder with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Honey, 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 I know, I know, I know. Shelter in place. And you can grow toward becoming a person of joy, a person of peace. Not that I have arrived yet or already been made perfect, but this one thing I do, pressing on toward the mark to win the goal, even now, especially now. If you're not feeling it yet, don't worry about it. If you're a worrier and some well-meaning Christian tells you not to worry, don't worry about how much you worry. Nobody ever worried their way out of worrying too much. Paul does give one incredibly concrete command. In fact, uh, you and I have probably violated and disobeyed this next verse more than any other verse in the Bible. Not just every day of our lives, but every hour, at least every minute, maybe every second. And you didn't even know that you were disobeying it. And disobeying it has horrific consequences. Disobeying this will prevent us from entering into the condition of joy and the condition of peace and the condition of love. Not just that, when you see these words, when you see this command, you will say, I'd love to obey that. That's a great idea. 
I want to get started on it right now. So here it is. Think about these words. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things and the God of peace will be with you. That seems like such an obviously good idea. Think about the alternative. Whatever will make you inadequate, unloved, unable, unhappy, ungrateful, small-minded, dissatisfied, scared, self-centered. And yet that's where our minds go. See, the primary way that you experience life, reality, always, always, always is mediated through our minds. It is in our mind that we can shelter in place. It's a strange thing. This last season has often been stressful for me. I know uh, we're in a stressful time for a lot of people. And I have felt myself often drawn to a soothing agent that you will all know about. Comfort, food. I want food that will bring peace to my soul. I don't know about you. For me, it's peanut butter. I kid you not. I have had peanut butter sometimes three times a day. One time I took a picture. We literally had seven jars of peanut butter in the house because I was going through it so fast. That was before the virus. Nobody was hoarding. I was just like a junkie. Why would anybody think they could get comfort from what they put into their body while ignoring what they put into their mind? And there are these amazing words, which now are realities, spiritual realities in scripture. The prophet says in Isaiah 40, when the people are in a time of great stress and strain, comfort, comfort my people. The Holy Spirit, among other wonderful titles, is called the comforter. Why would I want to be comforted by food when I could be comforted by the spirit, when I could be comforted by the word of God? I've been working on this a ton over these last several months, just in my own life. I've been living in a book called You Are Not Your Brain. The author is a neuro researcher and a follower of Jesus. His name is Jeffrey Swartz. And he says that your brain, a little three pounds of gray tissue in your skull, is basically passive. It basically registers and repeats whatever it's been exposed to or fed into it. But your mind is something else. Your mind can decide to focus on whatever it wants. Your mind can decide to focus on what is true, what is noble, whatever is right, so that you can grow into the condition of love and peace and joy, whatever your circumstance, through the power of God. I have been learning how much a slave I am, I have been, to what the author calls deceptive brain messages. This is living... In the flesh, just the way that our brain automatically works. Fear, resentment, worry. I'm going to get sick. I will fail. There won't be enough. I'm afraid. I am learning those little deceptive brain messages have hijacked my mind so much I don't even notice. Jeffrey Schwartz says, either your brain will be in charge of your mind or your mind will be in charge of your brain. And I will tell you which God has in mind. 
Paul says we have the mind of Christ. He doesn't say we have the brain of Christ. God is spirit. God has a great mind, but he has no brain at all. And he's never missed it. That's why Dallas says, for God, every decision is a no-brainer. So part of this passage means I'm spending time each day being still to become aware of what it is that I'm thinking. Because most of us are never still enough to ever even notice. And this season, when we're sheltering in place, is a wonderful time to still and become aware of what's running in my mind. What are those thoughts? To catch and release those deceptive brain messages. You're not enough. You won't have enough. God couldn't love somebody like you. You got to get even with this person. So, so, and this is what Paul talks about, I get intentional about what I fill my mind with. See, the capacity to direct consciousness is the great art of human life. The freedom to decide what my mind will think about is the greatest and ultimate of human freedoms that no one can ever take away from you. And yet most of us just waste it horribly, pathetically, and, 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 and then become vic victims of whatever our circumstances are. So use this season now to get very intentional about what are you going to fill your mind with? Scripture, for sure. I immerse my mind in it. I reflect on it. I search it these days desperately every morning for helpful thoughts to be with God. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I memorize it, not for spiritual brownie points, not because it's an obligation, but so that my mind can think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. And then this practice uh, of thinking up filling my mind with what's good, is bigger even than the Bible. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely. He actually uses in this passage a string of words. They're almost never used by Paul, but they're used quite often by pagan philosophers in his day. Paul is quite deliberately telling people, yes, know the Bible, love the Bible, read the Bible above all the words of Jesus, but wherever you see whatever is true and noble, let that soak into your mind. Nature, ocean, sunsets, music, conversation with friends, stories of moral beauty, truth, learning, laughter, essays, accurate spreadsheets, poetry, a well-struck golf ball, a well-written email, whatever, true, noble, wonderful, lovely, shelter in place. Even if that place feels like the valley of the shadow of death, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings and so become like him in his death. Everybody around us is thinking a lot more about death these days. We keep count with the virus. How many have died? We're just more aware of mortality. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Jesus put it like this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has many rooms. 
If that were not so, I would have told you. If that were not so, would I have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Often in this past season, I have been moved by watching my little grandson's body flourish and grow while having watched death at work in others I love and thinking about Jesus' promise. We have a room in our little condo where my grandson Chance sleeps when he comes over. And the other night it was just him and me. And I sang to him and put him down in the crib and closed the door. And true story, much to my surprise, as I walked away with the door closed, he started to cry, I know, I know, I know. And it was like 35 years were gone in an instant. And it was like, it was that tiny little redheaded girl's voice I could hear. Chance's favorite room in our condo has a Murphy bed in it. And when you pull that down, there's a giant black and white picture of Chicago in 1930. And his favorite thing is to climb up on that bed and turn the little light switch on and off and point to that giant picture and say, Cago, 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 over and over. When I call him up, FaceTime him and say the word, he just says, Cago reverently over and over again. Anytime now he sees the skyline anywhere, anytime he sees a picture of a city, he says, Cago, like it's a magic word. Cago. He doesn't even know there is a real place called Chicago and real people live there. And one day I will take him there and I will show him this is where I used to live. This is where your mommy used to live when she was a little girl. And even his grandmother will not be able to disrespect Chicago, not then. Because it is the place that evokes wonder in the heart of the child we love. And he longs for it without even knowing what it is that he longs for. And so it is in life and death. What we long for is home. To be at home with God. To shelter in place. And the wisest man who ever lived said the only way to get to home is not by clutching on, but by letting go. Not my will, but yours be done. Death is the ultimate letting go. Because, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If you trust me, if you die to your ego, if you give your life to me, one day I will take you there. And between that day and this day, if you're worried, if you're afraid, you come tell me. And I will send my peace to guard you. In the meantime, I want to invite you, all of us, to share a meal. The only meal that's brought real comfort, the only real comfort food for 2,000 years. Um, we're going to share this with everybody in our home. So I've just got a cracker up here. It's not about the elements. And so uh, whatever you've got at home, a piece of bread or a cracker, and I've got some juice in this cup. Doesn't have to be a fancy chalice. Whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to join me right now. You get the bread, you get the cup, and we think now about what is most noble and most admirable and most lovely, the participation in his suffering, in his death, Jesus said, 
This is my body broken for you. This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup in remembrance of me. Every Sunday morning, while somebody that I loved was real, real sick in the process of their life coming to an end, I would listen to one of the people I most loved to sing. And, and the song that you're going to hear now is an old, old hymn. It was the song I most loved to hear. Give me Jesus in the morning when I rise, when I come to die. Give me Jesus. Eat the bread. Take the cup. Hear the song.
Thanks for joining us. We really hope you enjoyed the message and that you took something from it that you can apply to your own life. If you want to keep up with what's going on at Menlo, follow us on social media, and we hope to see you again soon.